I'm Emily Bellet, founder of Vespot and author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and you're listening to The Wallet. Every week, we give you the best tips, guidance, and a good dose of inspiration and motivation to manage your money better. Vicky Spratt is a journalist whose work regularly shapes public policy. A 2016 campaign, Make Renting Fair, got letting fees in England and Wales banned, and she has spoken at political conferences, all-party parliamentary groups, and panels across the country on the issue of housing. You can read her articles in iPaper, she's the housing correspondent there, and a writer and editor at Refinery29. In this episode, we discuss a recently published book, Tenants, the people on the front line of Britain's housing emergency, and why the British dream of ownership has with her, but also more specifically, how to tackle the gender housing gap. She talks about her earned journey buying a home and shares some tips for anyone aspiring to buy their first home. We talk about market conditions and why it's important to cover financial privilege. The stress of buying a house can feel overwhelming and very time-consuming. There are so many things to consider, and you definitely don't want to miss anything or get it wrong. Moneybox have helped hundreds of thousands save for their first homes with their market-leading lifetime ISA. You'll also be relieved to find out that Moneybox now offer a free mortgage advice service that supports you from your first steps to your doorstep. They cover everything from finding and securing the right mortgage all the way until your completion. A dedicated case manager will help you manage all the admin between solicitors, lenders and estate agents, making your home buying experience all the more stress-free. Please note your home could be repossessed if you do not keep up repayment on your mortgage. A government LISA withdrawal charge may apply. Remember that we are not certified financial advisors. Information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. You've been writing about housing since, I mean, maybe 2016, um, your campaign Make Renting Fair, um, you know, was, you know, very popular, uh, basically letting fees in, in England and Wales banned. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, what got you interested in, in this particular topic? It's quite straightforward, actually. I have always been interested in housing because I think for everyone, home is the center of your life. It's where everything starts. It's where you wake up every day. It's where you go to sleep. It's where you're most you're, it's where you're, you're most vulnerable. But it's also where you should be safe. And for so many people in our country today, home does not feel like a safe place. I've had my own experiences of that. And when Make Renting Fair came about, at the time I was deputy editor of a website called The Debrief, which sadly no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And... I was talking to my editor about us doing an editorial campaign. Women's media have always run campaigns on important issues. There's a long history of that. And we wanted to do something that year. And they were like, well, what's going on in your life? And I turned to my editor, editor and publisher, uh, two brilliant women, Rebecca and Lauren. And I was like, well, I just paid like over 2000 pounds because I'm moving house. And at the time, Letting agents could still charge you fees to move, um, all sorts of fees that they seemed to just make up an admin fee of like a hundred pounds. What did that even cover? Um, referencing fees, key key fees, just fees for everything, yeah. and also huge deposits, which were sometimes six weeks uh, rent. I think mine was, or was it two months? I can't remember. Anyway, the, the point is, I just handed over like two thousand four hundred pounds because I was moving from one rented flat to a new one, 
and I didn't have the money so I had to borrow it and it felt really unfair it felt like I was being penalized for not owning a house I was getting into debt because I didn't own a house and then my rent was going to be really expensive I was really fed up and I was really annoyed and I looked it up because that's what journalists do and you are annoyed about something you just start looking into the legislation to find out if the person annoying you is in the wrong. So I was going through it and I was like, what? Letting fees are banned in Scotland, but they're not banned in England and Wales. This is a scandal. So that's how Make Renting Fair was born. And I guess that was the start for you of, you know, maybe tenants and all these like interviews that you started doing from 2017. So tenants is really about, you know, Britain's housing crisis, housing emergency. Can you tell me a little bit more um, about the book and, and the journey um, writing the book? Well, interestingly, my experience of reporting on housing started slightly before Make Renting Fair, which is relevant to your question. So I used to work at the BBC as a political producer, broadcast journalist, and I worked on a programme that was then called Daily Politics, uh, it's now called Politics Live, and I worked at Newsnight, and I used to work on Radio 4 News. And very early on in my career, started realising that housing would come up and up and up every year, every budget, um, every Queen's speech. When you're on those political news programmes, you get into the churn of the parliamentary calendar. And it was always the same story, We don't have enough council houses. People can't afford to buy a home. Young people were priced out of home ownership. It was always the same story and very little was happening uh, to fix it. And at that time, David Cameron was the prime minister. So his government bear a lot of responsibility for the housing crisis that we're now in, I think. And it was from there that I then moved over into women's media at the debrief and Make Renting Fair happened. And I think tenants really came out of all of that experience because what I realized I suppose working on quite niche political programs that are, are great you know Newsnight's a flagship program but it doesn't reach a wide audience and then going somewhere where the goal as a journalist is that you want as many people to read about important things as possible so the more people you reach the better and when I was writing about renting and, and the crisis in renting at the debrief I realized how many young women because that was our demographic were responding to this and saying yeah me too like this is my situation I can't afford to buy a house I just paid these huge fees so I think tenants really came out of both because what I realized was what's happening in Westminster is completely disconnected from what is happening in people's lives. And I think tenants was an attempt, is an attempt to bridge that gap. And so what I hope I've done is for the reader who experiences the housing crisis and worries that it can't be solved, worries that politicians don't care, but also maybe doesn't know the history of And let's face it, who's tuning in to the Queen's speech in every yeah. single budget? It's my job to, and then re read the documents so other people don't have Translated. to. Translated. Yeah, yeah, but no one's, no, one's, no one's tuning in, really, unless you're retired and you've got the time. So it's my hope that, that this book will say, actually, there are very, very real reasons why you can't afford a house. There are very, very real reasons why renting is so shit. And there are very real solutions. It's not the case that we just have to read headlines about how bad this is year on year and it will never get better there are solutions and 
there are things we could do. So what I've tried to do is is really raise up the stories of the people who have been getting in touch with me about their housing situations uh, from all over the country, from different walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds, and bring in the politics and show that there is a framework here. And this isn't an accident. It is political, but it also can can be fixed. You just talked about women and, and housing and maybe, you know, the specific issues. And I know you, you wrote in the past also about the gender housing gap. Can you tell me a little bit more about how we can approach it? I mean, first of all, it's awareness. So, you know, why is there, you know, this, this gender housing gap? And then what, what can we do about it? So ourselves, maybe women themselves, maybe politics, like if you have a few ideas around around how to close this? I think the gender housing gap is a really important topic that doesn't get as much attention as it should. So the Women's Budget Group, a really great organisation, did some research on housing affordability around the country. In they, they first did this piece of research in 2019. It was a report called um, No Homes of Our Own. And they looked at average house prices and average rents and average wages in every area of the country. And what they found was so shocking. There is not a single place in Britain where it is affordable for a woman on her own to buy or rent a home. Now, the way that, the way that we gauge affordability in, in housing, broadly speaking, is that your outgoings should be no more than a third of your take-home pay. So that's your income after tax. So that means that women's income after tax would not cover the average house prices or rents in those areas of the country. Now, that's a huge problem because if women can't afford housing, they're less likely to have a stable base than men. And that further entrenches gender inequality across the board. And of course, the reason for the gender housing gap is that broadly speaking, women earn less than men still because we still have a gender pay gap women are more likely to have caring responsibilities being part-time work. So what we're seeing here is that the gender pay gap and inequality in the workplace and inequity when it comes to how we pay women for the jobs they're more likely to do, like care work, is feeding insecurity of something so fundamental as having an affordable, safe and secure home. And I think it's really important to highlight the link between these two issues because it means that women aren't being paid properly in the workplace. So they're less likely to be able to live secure, stable, fulfilling lives. And that's a huge problem for society. And I think it's really important also to note here that since 2019, so since I first reported on that, we have seen house prices reach their highest point of inflation for decades because of the pandemic house prices are now at their highest since pre-financial crash so this problem has got worse and until we fix it i think that it will really re reinforce gender inequality and put women on the back foot and to your point about solutions it's not straightforward actually And I think this is maybe why <laughs> we aren't doing anything about it, because 
house price inflation so that by that when i talk about that i'm talking about the, the price of houses that you would buy if you were going to take out a mortgage is really complex and it's a huge driver of our economy the mortgage market is a really really important driver of financial services so put simply the government can't afford for the housing market to crash because if banks stop being able to make money from mortgages and people lose money on the homes they've now paid loads and loads and loads for, we could go into a very, very serious recession. And we already know that that happened in 2008 because of the global financial crash. So fixing house prices is not straightforward. Rent inflation is also at an all-time high right now because of the pandemic. So that's private rents in the private rented sector where people rent from private landlords. Fixing that, slightly more straightforward, in Scotland, they have these things called rent pressure zones where local authorities can apply to the government to have rents controlled when they're getting too high. We could do something like that. We actually used to have rent control, rent regulation in this country um, until Margaret Thatcher did away with it in in the 80s. We could, we could bring that back. And I think that would help a lot of people. I'm hearing from people day in, day out at the moment whose landlords are putting up their rent beyond what they can afford. As things stand in England, that's completely possible. Landlords can just put up your rent. And it kind of blows my mind that that's allowed because you've budgeted, you know you know how much your rent's going to be, and then suddenly it's more. What are you supposed to do? Your earnings don't work like that. You don't go to your boss and be like, oh, hey, do you know what? I actually really think I need to earn £400 more a month. And they're like, yeah, sure, here we go. Have some money. So I think that's a really, really big problem. Um, Of course, there are things we could do about house price inflation. And the former shadow housing secretary, John Healy, suggested um, when he was Labour's shadow housing minister that the Bank of England could set a house price inflation target like it does for normal inflation as a lever of controlling the market, the economy. Completely possible to do that. I think it would be a very unpopular thing because everyone wants to make money on their home. but But it could be done. So there are solutions. Um, of course, there's another solution which is related to this, which is free childcare. Why do we not have free childcare yeah. in this country? Universal free childcare would make such a difference to so many people. And then those with caring responsibilities would have more disposable income. And I think it's really important to talk about the cost of childcare in this context. Obviously, in this country, we have some of the most expensive childcare in Europe. That's feeding in to this picture of a gender imbalance because... If you're paying for childcare, on average, you're earning less. Housing costs are soaring. You're really, really, really going to be pinched. And um, whether that's a woman on her own, a person with children, or, or a single father who doesn't earn a lot, um, it's, it's going to be really, really, really challenging. And I think that the cost of housing underpins all of this because it's the one thing you can't go without. And it's also the, I mean, the cost of housing, we tend, people tend to sort of accept it um because because again like it's very hard to negotiate it's not like you know your bills where you can start to look around i mean if you've been living in a place it's also really hard to move and find another place um i feel at at the moment from the conversations i'm having with you know young people and, and my community people are starting to struggle with like bills um you know inflation cost um there's this pressure to also save for your future and also enjoy your life today 
Um, so it's really hard for people to, you know, manage, manage a budget. Like, I mean, first of all, being on top of your finances is super hard. And then really owning like, you know, what's coming in, what's coming out, budgeting. Um, and then this pressure of getting on the housing ladder, um, which is still like a big dream for a lot of people. And, and it would be amazing to all have a home and potentially have a mortgage that would be cheaper than paying rent. Um, can you talk a little bit about this dream of, uh, you know, owning a property and, and, and being on the, getting on the, on the housing ladder? Well, firstly, I really resonate with everything you're saying there. And I think, and I really can't overstate this enough. I think we're in a mess. And I think if inflation keeps rising, we could be in a, a real social yeah. and economic crisis if we aren't already. I mean, I think we are from what mm. I'm hearing from people and from what I know, watching my own bills go up. This is really, really serious. And I think calling it a cost of living crisis, as the government does, is kind of quite a convenient distraction, really, from the reality. Cost of living sounds quite airy fairy. It's actually the title of one of my favorite Deborah Levy books. It's very sort of existential, like the cost of living. What is the philosophical toll of being a human being? Like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people no. who are literally saying, I cannot afford to pay my energy bill, my rent and do a food shop. So I'm going to have to pick one. But it's picking one from from the essentials. Right. That's that's also the issue, right? I mean, you've got your budget with like you know your lifestyle pocket or whatever, but you sort of and, and your saving pocket, and both of these are just going to disappear to make sure you can cover for your essentials for most people. Exactly, and we're, and we're penalizing people who don't have wealth. Like let's let's be clear about what this is. We're penalizing yeah. people who don't have wealth, and that that's really also what the housing crisis is. It's penalizing people who don't have wealth, whether that's capital of their own because they're in a high paying job or family money that can be passed down to help them buy a house. And there is a reason why the dream of home ownership still exists and endures, even as house prices become untenable. And I don't think there are many people buying homes at the moment who look at how much they're spending and think, oh, yeah, I got a good deal. I think people are desperate and they want to buy a home at all costs, quite literally, because the alternative is so terrifying. And the alternative is what we've just discussed. It's living in a privately rented home where the landlord could put your rent up at any time where it could become unaffordable, where you could potentially have to uproot your family to a completely different area because you're priced out of your community. Yeah. Why would you mm. not want to get on the housing ladder? Because at least then you know how much your mortgage is going to be because you can fix it. I completely understand the dream of home ownership for that reason. I think it makes complete sense. I, for the same reason, as soon as I got some money, the first thing I did was use help to buy to buy the flat I'm sitting in right now. Because I was desperate. I was like, I've got to do this or, or the future is going to be a disaster. <laughs> and I wasn't wrong. And, and, and millions of people are not wrong. Um, I think if, if we had secure, properly regulated private renting and crucially, and this is a really important point, more social housing, then house prices would probably level out a bit and people wouldn't be so desperate to get on the property ladder. Can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of opening up about financial privilege and what we called, you know, the, the bank of mum and dad? I think, you know, it's just 
oh, it's just important to, to talk about it and understand why some people can afford it and others can't actually make the same choices. I think this is financial privilege is a really important thing to talk about. And I, on the bank of mum and dad, there's actually something I really um, think gets missed in this conversation, which is now I know people whose parents are remortgaging homes to help their kids buy homes. So the bank of mum and dad is not anymore just people who've got money giving their kids money. And they're very wealthy people. I know a lot of them. I was very surprised when I graduated from uni and suddenly everyone had houses. I remember one guy had this like four-story townhouse in East London. I was like, how did he get that? Oh, he's rich. That's how he got it. But but so so there are those people, and then there are people whose parents are literally remortgaging, taking out loans, taking money out of their pensions to help them get on the housing ladder. These people are not wealthy, and they are going to need that money back. I know one person who that is the case for, right? Like her mum took equity out of her pension to give her a deposit for a house, and now her mum needs that money back because if she has to go into care that money is going to have to pay for her care. So so there are levels of financial privilege, right? And I wouldn't have been able to buy this flat if it wasn't for some money from my ex-partner's grandparents, which I have to give back to him. Um, it's complex. It's really complex. And I think the problem with, with the bank of mum and dad um, is, is that we're, we're, we're flattening the conversation and we're thinking that yeah. everybody who's had family help is in the same position and that they're incredibly wealthy. That's not the case. And I'm very concerned about this economic trend of people taking money from their future to prop up the housing market. And I don't think we have any data on that because how do you record it? It's not being recorded anywhere. Like how many people have taken money out of pensions? How many people's parents have taken out loans? There's one woman, one woman in the book whose mother gave her money from her retirement fund. And, and I think what we could see if this continues is younger generations who've borrowed money from family to get on the property ladder, then having to financially support older people. And we did it all to prop up high house prices. And, and, and what we can see with the housing market, I mean, this is getting into the economics of it for a moment. I'm not an economist, but I think we should all have been taught about this in school because it's really important to understand that money has just continued to inflate housing. Housing hasn't magically become more affordable. In fact, everyone's desperation, completely understandable as it is, to pour money into housing so that their kids will be secure has caused prices to go in one direction, and that is up. And we're now at a point where actually, if house prices do fall, or there is another crash, although a lot of people don't like the word crash, and I understand why, it's not particularly helpful to reinforce this narrative of boom and bust. Um, We're going to be in big trouble. People have quite literally mortgaged their futures to prop up house prices. Can you talk about your experience um, buying your home or maybe like some of the tips you can share with anyone who's getting started today, looking for a place, trying to save money um, and, and looking for, for a home? Yeah, of course. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult one because I bought my flat with my ex-partner who I'm no longer with. So it's not just my story. So I don't want to... 
um, also tell his story because that wouldn't be fair to him. But what I will say on it is I wouldn't at that point in time, um, this was four years ago, have been able to do it as a single person. There's no way. It, it was our, our joint yeah. income and I took redundancy from a job and also got some money from this book and his grandparents kindly gave him some money and it wouldn't have been possible without all of those things happening. If you want to buy a house and you are worried that you won't be able to, the first thing I would say is that there are ways of doing it. Now, of course, all of these come with pros and cons. And as a journalist, I can't give property advice. But what I can say is that there are affordability schemes. They all have their pitfalls. Help to buy being one, that's actually due to run out next March. They're not going to bring it back. As far as I know, every time help to buy is supposed to end, it continues. And I have serious questions about whether it can even be ended now because I don't know how they'll sell homes because no one can afford them without the scheme. So the way that help to buy works is that you have a 5% deposit and then you take out an equity loan from the government and then you take a mortgage out as well. So you have a loan to the government, mortgage and your little deposit. Lots of good things about that if you want to buy a house, but also you will have a government loan as well as a mortgage. Then there's also shared ownership, which is similar, but distinctly different. That's a part by part rent model where you have a very small deposit, you buy a percentage of a home, pay rent on the rest. The idea is that over time you'll gradually staircase, which means buy more. So you might buy 20% of your home, eventually you'll own 60%, maybe one day you'll own the whole thing. Lots of good things about that model, but also you are part rent, part own so it can be complex in that respect although the government have taken steps recently to make it more affordable to staircase so you previously used to have to pay huge fees every time you bought a new bit of the house but that has been ironed out you can also buy a house without using an affordability scheme of course you can if uh, you're in a part of the country where you can afford to do so so that's just a deposit and a mortgage and i suppose really which option is right for you depends on how much money you have and where you want to live Uh, but what I would say regardless of what you think of each scheme or even home ownership as a concept if it feels like it's completely out of reach there are actually there are things that you can do and there are schemes out there the trend that I'm seeing in my reporting here and I suppose the thing to be aware of is that people are taking out longer mortgages so we're gone, we've gone from 20, 25 years being the norm to 30, 35. We're starting to see 40, 45 years enter the market. Wow. There are some places in the world where you can have a 70-year mortgage. In Japan, mortgages are passed down through families because they have to go on so long to keep up with high house prices. And Japan had a big property crash and they have a huge, huge issue with house price inflation. Yeah. So we may end up in a situation like that if house prices continue to rise. Is this good or bad? It depends on your perspective. And I'm not an economist, but it's just important to note that house prices are very high. But then again, I come back to the same point, which is renting is not ideal. So if you do want to get on the property ladder, don't be too disheartened because there are things you can do. And of course, it will give you a, a reasonable degree of security. And I think with a mortgage, of course, you can fix your interest rate you can't do that with your rent. 
And actually, I would love to yeah. see a way where you could fix your rent because it's wild that homeowners can lock in their payments and renters can't. And that to me just seems like a bedrock of wealth inequality. And once again, penalizing yeah. people who don't have capital. I have one final question, which is around right to buy. Um, the government is, is considering bringing it back. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about that and, and if you think it's a good idea? Huge question. Right to buy was <laughs> probably the single greatest act of privatization this country has ever seen. So what it did when it was introduced in the 80s was allow a mass sell-off of social housing again good and bad depending on your perspective it enabled people who are living in council houses to buy them at a discounted rate from what they would have been sold on the private market and that helped people own homes who perhaps otherwise wouldn't have done so and it still exists it's not gone anywhere but the idea that has been floated is that it will be extended to people who live in housing association properties. So yeah. it's very complex, I'll try and sum it up briefly, but the way that social housing works now is that we do have some council homes which are owned by local authorities, but we also have social homes which are owned by housing associations, which are private businesses. And this was announced just before the local elections in May by Boris Johnson's government, that they would extend right to buy to people living in housing associations. That would be a terrible idea because we don't have yeah. enough social housing because of right to buy. We've sold off so much, we haven't replaced it. We now have a huge shortage, over a million people waiting for social housing consistently in recent years. And lots of people being pushed into the unstable, insecure, unaffordable private rented sector, as we've discussed throughout this conversation. So getting rid of more social housing is not the answer to this crisis. And I think it would be quite complex to bring right to buy in for housing associations for lots of reasons, uh, the legalities of it and the finances. If they did find a way, I think it would be a disaster unless they're going to start building hundreds of thousands of social homes every year. So let's see what happens there. My hunch is that that was a, a cheeky little pre-local election announcement attempt to get people to vote conservative. <laughs> But hey, what do I know about the cynicism of politicians? <laughs> Um, thanks, Vicky. And, and finally, a question I ask all my guests. Um, what does money mean to you? Money means security to me. And having had very, very little money and now touch wood, long may it continue, earning an amount that I feel I'm able to live comfortably on and save on, I would wish financial security for everyone because it has completely changed my sense of self how i move through the world my mental health and just knowing that i have a safety net because i'm able to save is revolutionary so i think money is security Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Wallet. Every other week, I answer your questions about money on the show. To get involved, send your questions and comments via hotline to podcast at vespot.com. If you send us a voice note, you may even get to hear your voice on the next hotline episode. 
Be sure to share this show with your friends and subscribe on your favorite platform. Please also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It only takes a few seconds, but it helps more people find our show. Join us again next Thursday for another episode of The Wallet. I will be chatting live at Mortimer House with Bonnie Lister Parsons about how to fund your business, the ups and downs.